There was a uh, distinguished lawyer in the state of Massachusetts uh, named Samuel Hoare. Matter of fact, his contemporaries would say that he was the best lawyer in the state in the 19th century. Uh, there was one particular case, though, where he was um, d- actually um, the lawyer for a defendant. Uh, and as he went to, uh, to kind of share the, the case and share some of the evidence, he, he said this to the jury. He said, jury, I would not want to, to bore your time and take all of your time to share what is so clearly evident. He goes, matter of fact, to do so would insult your intelligence. Therefore, I'm not going to present anything in the case because it is so clear for the defendant already. In which the courtroom then has a little bit of an audible gasp and uh, they go on and do some deliberation. And eventually uh, they remove themselves and they go into a room and they're not very, there very long before they come back out. And they hand a slip of paper to the judge in which he slams the gavel and he actually declares the verdict guilty. At once, Samuel Hoare, in almost uh, an exuberant loud voice, goes, what in the world have y'all done? He goes, how in the world have you missed this? And then the committee chair stood up from his juror seat and he said, Mr. Mr. Hoare, we know that you are one of the best lawyers in the state. And if you did not take time to give evidence of the facts that you know would be in the case, we know there are no real factual evidence. Because if there was any evidence at all, we know that you're the type of lawyer that you would have presented very clearly, deliberately, and you would not have stayed silent. And so because you remained silent, we knew that your defendant was guilty. Isn't it crazy how our silence can oftentimes speak? Well, today that's really the message that Paul has for the church of Rome. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with Romans chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome those that are joining us online. I want to welcome uh, those that are hanging out with us uh, today from their homes or other places in the world. Uh, We're glad to have you. And as you're turning there, uh, Paul's message really today is to help really, I would say, make clear a few things. One, he makes clear that the message that has gone forth from God has not been silent. He makes it very clear, too, that the, uh, the things that have been clear and compelling are, are not silent. And then he also says this, that the church or those um, that are understanding the good news should not be silent. And so you're going to see this kind of theme as we work through the text. Let's pick up in verse 11. In order to understand verse 11, it really is helpful to know verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 just remind us, as Paul wrote, to this Jewish community that he desired to see come to faith in Christ, even though uh, they've heard of Christ, they deliberately reject him. He goes, I want you to, to see the message and the gospel. And he goes, and I also want you to know that It is as simple as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you could be saved. And so in the context of that, he adds on this in verse 11 in his letter, which says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. When he says this, he goes, listen, it's not just a a belief in your heart and confession in your mouth that saves you, but he goes, you can also be sure that if you have evidence of salvation because of your belief and your faith, he goes, you need to know you'll never be put to shame. Now, when he says that, he makes it very clear that it's everyone who believes in Jesus Christ that will not be put to shame. That actually is very um, consistent with what uh, Jesus' beloved disciple John says in his letter, uh, 1 John 5. 
verses 11 and 12. And, and John just said this. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And eternal life is in his son. And he says this, whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son does not have life. Now, why is that consistent? That's what Paul's saying. He goes, listen, if you have the Son of God, a belief in your heart, confession in your mouth, you're saved. He goes, you need to know you won't be put to shame. But he goes, if you have not deliberately chosen God with, through a belief in your heart and confession in your mouth, then he goes, you will be put to shame. You will not be in the kingdom of God and enjoy eternal life forever. Now, the reason that Paul is writing this is because it's very difficult in that day and time for a Jew to comprehend this thought. A Jew thinking that I am um, God's beloved people, we're chosen, we're set apart, we are grafted in just because of who we are and by name, uh, by circumcision, by the law, by all these other things. Paul then makes the case in verse 12 that anyone who believes in their heart, confesses their mouth, not only is not put to shame, but that this message is available to all. Verse 12, Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. See, the verse 3 of this particular chapter just shows you that the Jews sought to find um, grace, really, by God through their own righteousness. So they were making an appeal to God based off of their own merit, based off their own works, by their own ability to keep the law, which is the Ten Commandments and really a collection of 613 civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. And their ability to do that is what they thought brought favor upon themselves. But Paul says, no, there's no distinction. It's not about what you've done or what, what you haven't done. It's about a belief in your heart, confessing in your mouth that you're not put to shame. And that's available for Jews and Greeks because the Lord is the Lord of us all. Paul, kind of having a similar theme, he writes to a Jewish community in Galatia that was really struggling with the law and Jesus Christ. Now, that particular area knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but where they really struggled was to separate how Jesus would ultimately fulfill the law and not abolish it. And so they thought, well, Jesus fulfills it, but there's no way we can abolish these thousands of years of, of, of credibility within the law. And so they really struggled to put faith in Jesus Christ alone and so they kept adding a plus to it. And that plus had to do with them keeping the law. But that's why Paul writes to the church of Galatia. In the context of that letter, he writes this in Galatians chapter 3 um, that kind of goes with verse 12. He says, um, Galatians 3 verse 24, he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So he says the law was there to remind us that we needed God, and that by faith it was still credited us to a Jew as righteousness. It was credited to Abraham by faith. It was credited to Moses by faith. All of them by faith. Hebrews 11 makes that very clear. But what he says is the law was the guardian until Christ. Verse 25 goes on, but now that faith has come, meaning Christ, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have now put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, neither male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Here's what Paul is saying to the church of Galatia, and it makes emphatically clear what he's also trying to say to the church in Rome. He goes, if you come to a place in your life 
where you acknowledge that you've come to the end of yourself, that in the law you see your rebellion, you see the fact that you can't honor your father and mother, you see the fact that you're tempted to steal and oftentimes do, that you covet, that you're malicious, that you don't put God first. He goes, when you come to that place, he goes, all you have to do is recognize your depravity, your sinfulness, call out on the Lord by faith, believing your heart, confessing with your mouth that he's Lord, and you will have salvation. You will not be put to shame. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile. This could be for an Amorite, a Moab, a Hittite, and even that awful, awful person, the Samaritan or the Philistine, that anyone could have salvation by faith through Christ. It wasn't only a men thing. It also included women and children. This was the gospel going forth. And for a Jew to hear these words, anyone who lives according to Christ is an offspring of Abraham would have been mind-blowing. No, 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 no. I'm an Israelite. Abraham's our father. And now for you to say that any of these other people, by faith, through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, could have a claim on Abraham as their spiritual father, just shows that the gospel is going forth to any who would respond to God's grace. And that was a real challenge for the people of Israel to understand, to wrap their heads around, and to embrace. But that is the gospel That's why he follows it up with this statement in his letter. And we'll see it in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he quotes Joel the prophet in Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Matter of fact, he also, you could say, is quoting Peter as he's preaching at Pentecost because he says the exact same thing to a group of people there in Jerusalem. And he says, hey, repent, be baptized, all of you. And he goes, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that was the message. And that was radical in the early church because the message was going forth that anyone by faith could believe in their heart and confess to their mouth and have salvation. But that's the free gift that God offers. Then you see a little shift. I mean, after he kind of makes this point very clear that, that God's not silent on salvation, he makes it very clear too that you and I or perhaps those in the early church are not to be silent. And so he asks four questions. He asks three of them in verse 14 and one in verse 15. And I want you to see what he says. In verse 14, he asks the question, well, how then will they call on him who they've not believed? He goes, how are they going to call on God if they don't know who he is? Now, let me ask you a question. Are there people throughout the world now that are calling on gods that they don't know who they are? That was the problem in in the Grecian times. They had so many gods, they didn't even know which ones to call upon. They even had statues of an unknown god in case they missed one, which Paul clearly points out in Acts to the Grecians. So he goes, you you got so many gods. And what Paul is saying to the church of Rome, he goes, how does someone call upon God in whom they've not believed? They don't know him. They, They don't even know who he is. He asked the question number two there. He goes, and how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? So it's one thing to be guessing about a God. It's another to struggle to believe in a God that you've never heard of. How do, you, how do you believe in a God that you've never heard of? He goes on and asks a third question. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So here's the progression. He goes, how do they, how do they respond if they don't know who to believe in? How do they respond if, if they've never heard? And how are they going to hear if no one preaches? Now, what's interesting is, is this word there, preaching in the Greek, is the word caruso. 
If you have a New American Standard Bible, um, then your, your word is probably not, it's probably going to say, instead of preaching, it may say preacher. So how are they going to hear unless there's a preacher? Um, th- this word, Caruso, can actually be transliterated a couple of different ways. It, it could be translated uh, in the form of a preacher, which would mean an emphatic person, someone who proclaims. Okay, So real quickly, real quickly, do me a favor. Everybody participating, and I can see you because this room is not as big as you think. Um, point to the preacher. Y'all point to the preacher. Okay? So here's the deal. If you pointed to me, then you're wrong. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why I don't like the word that it has to be. I wish they would have chose a different word. Because I think a better word is the word proclamation or preaching. And the reason why is because if you look at other places in Scripture, the Scripture is clear about who are preachers. Or, and I think where we've confused it in the American church, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm about to go to preaching, okay? Where we've missed it in the American church, and we continually miss it, is we think, oh, the preacher. I have a guy that often around here calls me preacher. Hey, preacher. I oftentimes am in our community and I'm like, hey, preacher, and the people will call me that. And listen, I do not count it as a blessing to be referred to as the preacher because I'm not the preacher. I am a shepherd of God's body. I am an equipper of the saints to do the work of ministry that we as the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, all are a part Our part matters, and we should all be active in participation of the body. That without us, the body doesn't work. Our bodies don't function as well as they should if we're missing a leg, or if we're missing an arm, or if you're missing an eye. The reality is, is the body works best when you see yourself as a part of the body as opposed to seeing me as the preacher. Now look, if you pointed at me, I'm not trying to guilt you, shame you, or or make you feel bad. I want just to adjust a couple of things in your mind, and I want to use Scripture to do it. The reason I don't like the word Caruso as preacher, but I would rather it be preaching or the word proclamation, is because of 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Peter makes emphatically clear to a bunch of people who are running for their lives as they're spreading through the gospel through uh, Cappadocia and... um, Galatia and other places, he makes it very clear, these words. Look what he says. He says, but you are a chosen race. He says, you're a royal priesthood. Now, you can underline that in your Bible, a royal priesthood. He says, you're a holy nation. He says, you're a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What he says here, he goes, you are chosen. He goes, you've been called out of darkness into wonderful light. He goes, you are a priesthood. And when you think about a priesthood, it's a particular people that are in service to their king. It is a person that is in service to the one they worship. And so we have a job to do and a service to render. And when I say we, I mean a collective we. I'm not talking about a we as in me. I'm talking about a we as in our body, the church, those of us who have believed in our heart, confessed with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are not put to shame. We are now grafted into the family of God, called out of darkness, into the wonderful light. We now have a job to do, a service to render, something to be a part of, which is why we make a big deal here about membership and belonging to the body of Christ. Why? Because 
we are a part of something. The scripture makes it emphatically clear that we are part of something. We're not a part of a membership club. This isn't a community golf club. This isn't something that we get together and, and we high five and slap each other on the behind every now and then and go, hey, man, you're really doing good at not doing anything. But this is what our churches are doing, friends. All over the country, we get together, we give an inspiring message, makes all of us kind of walk out, we feel good about ourselves, we go, hey, that's fantastic. We go, we live our lives, continue to be rooted and built up in sin as according to our lives rather than built up and strengthened according to our faith. And then we gather and do it all over again. And we see the preacher as someone we pay, a job that he has to do, and we render ourselves useless in service to our king, though we are called a priesthood. And listen, there's a lot of us who would rather it be preacher rather than proclamation. But the proclamation says, no, you have a job to do. Now, here's why I think this matters. There's a guy that was a man I loved. His name was Howard Hendricks. Uh, he was a professor at DTS uh, before he passed away. But Howard Hendricks said this, he said, we have never lived in the midst of a generation that need or was screaming for answers more than today. And he says, and Christians are stuttering. I mean, I look around and I, I see young people struggling to understand gender, gender identity and the church is silent. I, I struggle to see um, racial challenges and all that kind of is transpiring in our nation and has been in the last handful of years. Although it's existent, it's been much more prominent, and the church has become silent. Parents have become silent to what's actually going on in schools and in homes. We're ill-equipped to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ, 1 Peter 3.15. And in some ways, we're becoming okay with it to pawn them off on the professional. Hey, I don't have the answers, but I'll hire somebody to give you the answers. And I just think we got to be careful about that. Why? Because we are the ones. How are they to hear unless someone is preaching? Who is preaching? You, me. I mean, that's why he goes on in verse 15. And he says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach unless they're sent? So he goes, it's one thing to have a voice, but what if you never go anywhere? What if you never get out of your comfort zone and go somewhere? And here's the deal. Can I just tell you that the church, by and large, sees ministry done in one of two ways? Now, I'm not going to say our church, but I'm going to say, by and large, the church. And maybe you grew up this way, and maybe you really wrestled to get out of it. But here's how the church, by and large, sees ministry done. One is the preacher goes and does it. Two, I send a check. So think about gospel trips, mission trips. There's either a preacher or there's that crazy person that they love going everywhere. And you're like, I don't understand their faith. They're a little crazy. They're wackadoodle. I guess they're single. They don't have anything else going on. They go on all these trips. And I'm not going, but I'm happy to fund it. Paul says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Friends, sending is not about sending a preacher and it's not about sending a check. Now, let me ask you a question. When God sent his son, did he send a preacher? Yes, he did. John the Baptist, preaching, preparing the way of the Lord. But let me ask you a question. Did he stop there and send a check? What if he would have sent a check? Just a check. Hey, here's a check. Fill it in. Use it. How you... Man, we would be hopeless, wouldn't we? 
We'd be in despair, so thankful that he sent a person, a person to identify with our weakness, a person who understands your pain, a person who understands temptation, a person who understands what it's like to, to, to be spit on in the face, to, to be reviled but yet did not revile in return. Isn't it amazing that God loved you so much that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, that you still keep in secret? The things that you're ashamed of, that God loves you so much that he sent not a check, but a personal God in the flesh that embodied everything who God is, his own son, to meet your needs. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And how do they hear? How do they believe? If you don't tell them, if we don't go. And when I say we, I'm talking about a collective we. Consider the words that Jesus said, some of his last words, and recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. You've heard it before, probably. But Jesus says, hey, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does Jesus say? He goes, make, it, make disciples. Of what? All nations. All nations. How do we make disciples of all nations? He goes, you got to go. So how do I go to nations? Well, you go. And then when you go, what do you do? You teach them. You teach them what? Everything that I've commanded you. It seems so simple, doesn't it? But yet it seems so difficult for most of us. Consider the words of Jesus before he ascends to the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Right before the church explodes, he says this in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you receive power, dunos, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Judea, uh, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What does he say? He goes, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my ambassadors. Who? Just a preacher? Just one? Just Peter? Just the guy who proclaims the message at, at Pentecost? No. He goes, you guys are my witnesses. Do you see the plurality there? And he goes, and what do you do? He goes, you go. Hey, Jacob, put up uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 for me, Bubs. Hey, Jacob, put up Acts chapter 1 verse 8 for me. So he goes, so there you go. You'll, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. You see that? Who's the witness? We are. So that's the key. Then look what he says in verse 15. He didn't just say, hey, how are they here unless someone's sent? But look what he says next. He says, and as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And what he does is he quotes Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Now, back in the day, when, when you had a war, people would go off to war. And when a war was won, what they would do is they would send a messenger, and that messenger would go by foot. And when they got to the village, they would proclaim, they would herald the good news. We've won! We've won! And everybody in the village would rejoice, right? And then what would they do? They would await for all the soldiers to return. And when they did, they would have a party, and they would enjoy it. But there were, there were people that were bringing good news by foot, right? Now, when Isaiah gives it the context in Isaiah chapter 52, he's, he's giving it regarding Assyria and the freedom and deliverance from Assyria. But Paul takes that same theme and he goes, how beautiful are the feet of those who, who bring good news. And he's talking about the gospel. He goes, there is nothing better 
than the deliverance of sin. He goes, it's one thing to be delivered from war. It's one thing to be delivered from another country. But he goes, it is another thing, a whole nother level to be delivered from darkness into the kingdom of light. It's one thing to be an orphan, to, but now be called a son. And he goes, and that happens when we are free of sin. That's the idea. And so Paul's application is, is that, hey, we've got to preach the good news. Proclaim it, tell it, celebrate it. Now, the question then becomes apparent, though, in, in all of this, is saying, okay, but if you preach it, Paul then asks the question, well, what happens for the Jew? Because the Jew might ask, well, but have I heard it or have I really understood it? And he begins to methodically answer these questions that he poses, almost metaphorically or hypothetically, but then he answers his own question. The reason why is because he wants to, the Jew to see from the prophets and also the patriarchs that they've answered these questions, that this is not new, that this is what God has been encouraging the Jew to see the whole time. And so look at verse 16. He says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, uh, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so he goes, look, Isaiah said it 700 years ago, and he quotes Isaiah 53.1. He goes, they're not all going to believe the message. And that's emphatically clear that the Jews are going to stumble upon Jesus, the stumbling block. He goes on, verse 17, though, and that's why he asked the question. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Or he makes that statement. And the reason he does that, he goes, look, faith comes from hearing, and then hearing through the word. Now, when you see the word there, the word oftentimes means logos or like the whole counsel of God's word. It's, it's the person and, of Jesus, but it's also his word, the scriptures. But he doesn't choose that word. When he says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, he doesn't use the word logos there. He actually uses the word rhema. And the rhema is, is not the word of God like you and I would think about. It. So when you think about the word of God, you think about the word. Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, you remember the, the, that the word of God is referred to as your sword. Now, when you think about the word of God and a sword, what do you think about? You think about a big old sword? You know, like as a kid, you think about, oh, the sword of the spirit, you know, uh, and you think about this big old huge sword. But that's not the word there in Ephesians 6 either. You know what the word is? The word is rhema. The word rhema is actually... It's, it's, just, it's, it's called an utterance, but it would be referenced to a short sword, not a large one. It would be like a dagger. It'd be an utterance. It would be something that you had written on the tablet of your heart, like scripture memory, that you were prepared to be beautiful feet. So when you, when, you're, when you go off to war, you may take some things with you, but you may lose a lot of things in war, and you're not necessarily bringing them all back. So, so what are you prepared for? You're prepared, 1 Peter 3.15, to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ. Friends, I can share the gospel, the good news. And Paul's point was this, is that we should too, even if you don't have your Bible with you. Like there should be enough of your story that's deliberately shared, including scripture and utterance from God, the word that you could share deliberately. How beautiful are the feet of those who good news. And how does, how does it happen? It happens when faith comes from hearing and hearing comes through the word of Christ. It's you being prepared. You don't have to have your entire Bible. It's that you would write some of it on the tablet of your heart. You'd be ready at all times, in season and out of season, is what Paul said to Timothy. That's the key. Verse 18, he goes on and he says this, But I ask, have they not heard? And he's referring to the Jew. 
He goes, so what happens when you say, well, but they haven't heard? So there was a messenger, but they haven't heard. They just didn't respond. And is that going to happen? Can you share your faith and someone not respond? Yes. Can you control that? Is that your responsibility? No. At the end of the day, it's not. So Paul answered the question, well, what happens when, when, when somebody says they haven't heard? And he says, indeed, they have, referring to the Jew. And then he quotes David, a patriarch, a king. In Psalm 19.4, he says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and the words to the ends of the world. He says, listen, the good news has been told to the Jew. Moses shared it. David shared it. He goes, they are without excuse. Matter of fact, if you were to go back to Romans chapter 9, you see that the Jew had the glory, the patriarch, the temple, the law. They had the prophets. They had everything. He says, Paul goes, the message has gone forth. It's gone through all the earth. He goes, they haven't responded. He asked the question, verse 19, but I ask, well, did they not understand? So he goes, Israel heard the message. So potentially somebody's going to go, but they didn't understand it. They, they couldn't comprehend it. And then this is what he does. He quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. He goes, a throwback. And he goes, okay, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. As he's giving the context of that, he goes, listen, if you don't love me, if you abhor me, he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll use the, the gospel to go forth. I'll use the message of God to other nations. And can God use other nations to bring about his purposes and plans? Absolutely. He's been doing that. And so here's what he says. He goes, I'm going to, he goes, I'm going to raise up something else. And so he does this in a sense. And you'll see in chapter 11, he's going to raise up other nations eventually to bring about jealousy for the Jews. That he goes, hey, if I can't win your heart over, what would it look like if you were jealous? What would it look like if you, you saw me bring it about a bride a different way? And has Christ brought about a bride, the church, the Gentile? Yes, and his sovereign plans and purposes. So Paul says, look, they've heard. They were not ignorant. Yes, they, they didn't understand, but it wasn't because it wasn't clear. He goes, they didn't understand because their hearts are hardened. They're stiff-necked and they have fetters over their eyes. And then he goes to verse 20. And he quotes Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, as he shares the last part of this section in verse 20 and 21. He says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So Isaiah says there's going to be a time and a day where the Jew will harden their hearts in stiff-necked rebellion. He goes, and I'll find a different people. Has he done that? Yes. Y'all remember the centurion um, in Matthew chapter 8? who comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, I've, I've got a servant. Do you mind, Jesus? Would you heal him? And Jesus says, absolutely, I'll heal him. And then he goes, we'll go to your house. And then the centurion said, no, 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 no. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, the centurion is a Roman citizen, so he's a Gentile. So Jesus says, no, I'll come. The centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy. And then the centurion says this. He says, listen, I know what it's like to be a man under authority. And he says, I say, go to my men, and they go. I, I tell them to come, they come. He goes, Jesus, all you got to do is, is say the word. And then Jesus says, I have not seen the faith of anyone in all of Israel like this man. A Gentile, a centurion, a Roman saw who Christ was and put his faith in him. Now, what's the contrast to that is in Matthew chapter 6, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 6, you see um, the story of Jesus teaching in the, in the synagogue and as he's teaching the synagogue, there are people who go, who is this guy? Who is that guy? 
But what's interesting is Jesus could sense their unbelief and was unable to do anything as far as a real powerful, great miracle. Matter of fact, that's when he says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. But then Jesus makes the statement in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. He just says, they stumble in unbelief. Here it is, these Jews. And he says, and Jesus marveled in their unbelief. So can a Roman have great faith while a Jew lacks faith? Yes, and that's Paul's point. And in verse 21, he says, But of, of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. So he goes, The Jews are without excuse. He says, I have given them the law. He goes, I, I gave them judges. They didn't want judges. They wanted kings. I gave them kings. Their kings were evil. He goes, I'm the true king. He goes, they, they didn't want kings, so I, I, you know, they, they stumble in disobedience. He goes, I send prophets. He goes, they didn't listen to them. They rejected them. They were spiteful to them. He goes, I've given them everything. I've given them my presence. I've given them a place of worship. I gave them the law. I gave them kings. I gave them judges. I gave them everything they need. And they time and time again in disbelief with stiff-necked rebellion rejected me. I gave them my Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one of Israel to bless all the nations, to make Israel look grand as they would be a rich blessing to the entire world. And they took him and they crucified him and they put him on the cross. They despised, they scorned him, they rejected him, they spit upon him and they called him a blasphemer and he was the very one the essence of God in the form of flesh and they did not see him and they says that's why he says I've held out my hands I've given them all they need they've rejected pretty amazing right and so what did God do in their rejection in the Jewish people not listening to the beautiful feet of those who brought good news. And their knowledge of knowing better, which Paul would say was ignorance. What did God do? God came up with a plan to reach the nations without Israel. So he uses a remnant of them, and then the message goes forth. In the midst of suffering and persecution in the early church, it spreads like a wildfire. wildfire. And you can see what God saw as a means of salvation as Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 21 and 31, and we'll close with this. And this is what Paul says. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, he says, the world did not know God through wisdom. He goes, the world is not wise. And he goes, and we didn't come up with the concept of knowing God. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. He goes, you've got Jews who always want more. They want signs. They want wonders. They need more stuff. Why? Because Moses could do that. Aaron could do it. Hey, why don't you do more? Why don't you save us? The Greeks lost in all of their confusion. They demand more as well, but it's all foolishness to them. Paul says, nonetheless, we keep preaching Christ. And the Jews stumble on it. Is that true? Yes. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul says, so, so brothers, I want you to consider something. He says, consider your calling. 
He goes, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And when I look back in my own story, I didn't come from a place of nobility. I didn't have anything to offer God. I didn't have all these gifts that I go, hey, Lord, I'll render all my gifts to you. If you'll save me, give me eternal life and bless me forever, I'll give you what I got. It's not how it came. God goes, I'm not going to go about anymore. I've handed out my hand to the Jews. They rejected me. I'm going to take the foolish. I'm going to take the ones that people look on and they see them as low low and despised. They see them as weak. And he goes, and I'll take foolishness and I'll show you wisdom. I'll take weak and I'll show you what strength is. And God has a purpose in fulfilling his kingdom through people like you and me as we proclaim the gospel, the good news to other people. And friends, that is our responsibility. And I want to implore you in that as I close. I genuinely want to see you face to face. And so I'm going to get down on a knee and I want to just have a family conversation. Over the last nine weeks, on Wednesday nights at Student Ministry, we've been talking about what the ecclesia is the called out ones, about what they've been called out of and what they're called to. That they've been called out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ. Called out from sin to share the gospel. Called to the proclamation of something. What is the proclamation of? The proclamation is of the good news of Jesus. That even though we're sinners and even though we've missed the mark, that God sent his son to meet us right where we are. And friends, as I look across this room, I know that we come from a variety of places and backgrounds, and even many of us in this moment right now are suffering greatly. Wondering, God, what what is it that you're doing in my life? And why am I here? Like, God, what's the purpose in all this? And why am I even coming to church? And I want you to just understand why you're here. That if you have trusted Christ by faith, with a belief in your heart and confession in your mouth, then you're his children. Paul makes it emphatically clear to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you're a new creation. Therefore, because you're a new creation, you have a ministry of reconciliation. And as a ministry of reconciliation, you go about and you make an appeal to others by your life and by your words as a proclamation saying, hey, I've got the answer. I've got the hope that you have, that you need in Christ. And you make an appeal to others as an ambassador, Paul says, for Christ. But I think the troubling thing is, is time and time and time again, we want our churches to look fruitful and to be a blessing. But the problem is, is we're not fruitful and we're not a blessing. The challenge is, is time goes on and in our suffering and our pain and our hardships and our questions, instead of drawing near to the throne of grace with confidence and proclaiming in our suffering that there's a God who comforts us in all of our affliction, And the one who receives all of our burdens and his yoke is easy and his burdens are light. Instead of telling them that, we tell them about everything else in our life. 
the reason that God has you here and the reason you still have breath in your lungs and a heartbeat. Y'all got one of those? Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay, there's some people that didn't participate. Just go ahead as a neighbor. If it's appropriate, you can put your hand on their chest and just say, like, are they still alive with us, okay? If you still have breath in your lungs, it's not too late to be an ambassador. Friends, I just want to, I just want to make it abundantly clear why we're here. It's to be on mission. To be on mission. I, uh, my goal is not to serve your happiness. My goal is not to give you warm fuzzies or fill your heart so you walk out of here and you go, man, that was the best sermon I've heard. My goal is to be a coach, is to tell you when you're not doing what's right. It amazes me how we could let coaches yell at us and then we get into the church and somebody confronts us just a little bit and we run. You got a coach, get in your spot! How many times have I told you they grab you by the face mask and they just shake you to death and you're like, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And you call it normal. And then you've got somebody in the church and they go, hey, listen, buddy, I really see some sin in your life possibly developing. I think you should be. And then we leave the church. I cannot believe they had the audacity. Why are we here? What are we doing? We are the beautiful feet that bring good news. Friends, be beautiful. We are the bride of Christ, adorned for the groom. Spotless, blameless, and pure is the goal. I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. A struggle. But yet, nonetheless, it doesn't change the fact that the goal is that the bride of Christ is all of those things. May we make much of the bride of Christ. May we not tarnish her. May we not talk about her. May we not despise her. May we not reject her. May we love and encourage and equip so that the gospel goes forth throughout all the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, and even Samaria, those places you don't like, those people that you look down upon. James says favoritism is forbidden. Be careful who you think the gospel should go to and shouldn't. Namely, right now, maybe the gospel should go to Afghanistan or Russia. Listen, can I just help you understand something real quickly? If you see a corrupt place you don't want to be a part of, it is a clear sign they need the gospel. Why in the world do you think Putin wages war? James 4, 1, 2 tells us. Because his passions wage war in his soul and he does not know the hope of Christ. Do you see it? People need the gospel. I want to be a part of that. If we're here for any other reason, man, we're missing it. And I told you 11 years ago, if you were here, I never want to pastor, shepherd, or be an elder at a place where we're not on mission. And we're not going to be on mission. We're not going to be about the business. And let's get into a different business. The reason we give eggs out there are simply so that we can encourage a conversation. They're filled with chocolate candy. Who doesn't love chocolate candy? We're not just passing out eggs. What we're doing is trying to enter into a conversation where we say, hey, listen, bro. Hey, do you have a faith? Hey, tell me a little bit about your church background. Enter into a conversation. And as you do that, here's my prayer for you this week. Is one, is that you would care. 
that you would just care, that we would stop being indifferent to everything around the world. Think, it's not my problem. It's, no, it is. It's all of our problem. It, may we care. May we dare. May we dare to be bold. May we dare to enter a conversation even though we're uncomfortable. I get it. You go, I'm just not really a people person. A little confusing how John says, if you love Christ, you'll love others. But I get it. You're like, I just don't like people. Well, okay, well, will you love them and be daring enough to share the gospel? So you care, you dare, you share. Share the good news. Why? Because Christ has given it. And then here's what you do. You cover it in prayer. You got me? God, I have, I have done what Paul and Apollos did. One planted, another watered. And we're trusting that you'll give the growth. And that's what we're doing. That's all I'm asking you to do. Be beautiful feet. And y'all know what this time is right now in Texas? Y'all know what it is? Springtime. You know what springtime allows us to do? Go today, dig a little bit of the dirt, shake out some seeds, and see what grows. Your only goal is to be the beautiful feet. Please don't let me be the only one scattering seeds this week. And I think that's where the church is landed by and large. Does that make sense? And so may we all get some seeds, and may we remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, the harvest is plentiful. But the works are few. Therefore, may we go out into the harvest field. Spread some seeds, friends. And may it be beautiful in God's eyes. Amen? Amen. I pray you feel encouraged, a little bit admonished. But more than that, I pray you feel loved. I love you. I enjoy coaching you and being your pastor and a shepherd and an elder in this body. But by golly, we got some work to do. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, remind us of your faithfulness and help us just to scatter some seeds. Lord, I pray that we didn't come to be a part of a country club, but Lord, we came to be a part of a mission. That Lord, we are, we are on mission as your ambassadors, as your servants, as a priesthood, not depending on preachers or checks, but Lord, that we are willing to go even to the hard places, the difficult places. And I pray, Lord, that we would care enough to get into conversation with others, that we would be daring enough to enter into them when we don't even have any answers. That, Lord, we would share with boldness and clarity. And more than that, that we would cover in prayer and trust into you, our Savior. You're the one who brings about salvation. You're the one who brings about life from death. And we just trust you in all of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.